0: Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary. Today, we're taking a little break from the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin to tackle another great theologian of the church, the author of Ecclesiastes, who we will, I suppose, we should begin with by talking about who that author is. So, Ian, because you are the smartest man on earth, (laughs) you tell us,
1: You've been talking to my authored? kids, I see.
0: Yeah, we're talking to your kids. Who authored the book of Ecclesiastes? Let's start there.
1: Well, I mean, this is a, an interesting uh, sort of question, isn't it? Because the author himself in uh, the very opening verse of Ecclesiastes one one, uh, describes himself as the preacher. Some translations will have it as the teacher, the son of David, a king in Jerusalem. Hmm. And uh, that can kind of direct our thoughts to certain figures in the Old Testament. You know, the obvious... One that kind of jumps to mind that many people would uh, assume uh, the author is just King Solomon, um, but I am not the most the smartest man when it comes to Hebrew linguistics. Uh, I defer uh, to my uh, my honorable uh, co-host here in terms of actually like getting into a discussion of like is 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 the preacher is the teacher uh, Solomon um, because there's yeah, it's it's a not good... a clear cut case is it?
0: Well, it's a good question. And it's one of those things where I think we probably all assume Solomon, and largely it's not only that verse one where it says the son of David. I mean, who is the son of David? But Solomon, and Solomon's a really wise person. He he wrote all right. these like proverbs, all this kind of stuff.
1: And then when he also to... Solomon also kind of comes to the end of himself at the end of his life, right? And there's like he kind of gets into all kinds of trouble with
0: yeah, with women and all that. And that's and exactly that kind of how things are described in chapter two, verses four and following, where you have yeah a guy, a king who's had it all type of deal. So I think, I mean, from my point of view, I think it's very possible, plausible, likely that it, or whatever, that it's Solomon. The, the thing that holds me back is he doesn't say I am Solomon. He says right. I am the, the teacher. And so it's one of those things where it's like, well, how do you, how do you honor the biblical text in front of us? Do you honor it most by saying, I know he identifies him as a as teacher, but I'm going to do an historical reconstruction and call him Solomon. It's like, well,
1: What's yeah, he the loses his intended purpose it. yeah he's like why did he call it what what's the hebrew word um it's kohelet t- yeah right so why what is that word why does he what could be communicated in terms right. of the use of that particular weird word
0: yeah so the word that's preacher or teacher is the hebrew word kohelet and it's it's kind of odd for a number of reasons one uh it's has a what looks like the feminine ending so it looks like it's a it's a word to describe a lady, for example. But then you actually look, there's other uses, I think there's two, where this et ending actually talks about a vocation. And that vocation would be like, a, you know, a farmer or whatever, something like that. So that could be it. The other weird thing is that the form it's in, uh, is in it's in a participle form. So it's kind of like an action, verbal type of form. And you think, well, okay. So some people say, well, Kohelet means to gather. Kahal is to kind of gather. It's to make a congregation. So maybe this person is kind of like, sort of like a pastor or a teacher who's gathering a congregation together. Uh, but then you'd expect, and this is, again, this is gibberish if you don't know Hebrew, but you expect it to be like in a Hifel form of some fort, uh, some form, rather. And a Hifel form would mean that he causes this group to come together, or something to that effect. But it's in the Cal form, which is weird. And it almost makes it sound like he's in and amongst the congregation, and so I, I kind of think what's happening here is we're intended at least to see somebody among a group of people who is a wise, kingly figure, very possibly, again, Solomon, but that's I'm just talking about what's, what's being explicitly said, who is talking to a group of other wise men about life. And really, in one sense, talking through it, you can see that people will be listening. Um, probably there were conversations back and forth, which we don't have here, obviously. And so you'd almost think about it like sort of like those, like an ancient Greek philosopher just talking in a forum with a group of people or something like that. But this would be like the Jewish or I guess the Israelite version of it.
1: it, That that sparks a bunch of different thoughts. So if it's, if it's feminine, um, would there be a correspondence, do you think between lady wisdom and was that Psalm eight? Whose Uh, voice is calling? Yeah. Or sorry, did I say Psalm? Sorry. Proverbs (laughs) eight. um and uh so could there be a connection that way uh interesting right the, the preacher teacher the idea of gathering the assembly which relates to the ecclesia which gives us something yes it is Gashmines. that word Cal is the yeah yeah um and it sparks in my mind the image of like you know peripatetic <laughs> philosophers right so the idea of like you know a group of people in the lyceum are walking around with aristotle right yeah. he's in a he's the leader of these other kind of philosophical thinkers and students talking about all these things uh, within within the confines of their own uh, institution
0: i mean something like that is is definitely plausible like we know that they had groups of singers and poets if you look at proverbs you can you can see there's collections and proverbs 30 talks about a, a group of people if memory serves uh, so there there were groups like that. I mean, it's totally reasonable, totally plausible to have that kind of scenario. It would be a little bit different in an Israelite settings. So we have to transfer that to make sure we don't assume something that it's not. The feminine ending, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things about Hebrew is like, it's the wild, wild world, man. And I don't know if that means much of anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be honest, it could. I just don't know if it does. I, I, that would be something that, that's like one of those interesting things to consider, but you probably have to write a research paper and compare like all the literature everywhere at all time to make that kind of conclusion could be i don't know
1: so then so what's the broad sort of then takeaway so however we kind of want to like the with safest way to else, put it yeah. the
0: assumption is we're s- supposed to see this guy speaking to a group of people or this person speaking to a group of people now it's going to be a guy i mean he he marries and marries w- women so concubines yeah uh, it's it's very it's i mean it's very straightforwardly a man because of that um i don't i'm just saying the only way to get around that is you say he you know had same-sex marriage which was not in existence right like it didn't work that right way.
1: yeah even if the um, practice did in the ancient world the 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 institution of marriage didn't change because of it
0: yeah so and he, he's described himself as a king and so there's that kind of stuff going on so anyways I, that's the safest way to put it and i think you can imagine a group of people in a building maybe solomon's great uh palace colonnade yeah colonnade discussing basically philosophy this is a philosophical text and it's a philosophical dash theological text but remember like metaphysics is theology metaphysics is a is a part of philosophy so okay so
1: oh go ahead
0: i was saying I, i think it's a reflection on the world in which we live and the ultimate concerns of what it means to have eternity in our in our heart
1: okay so then that actually ties into what i was just gonna ask then so like you think of like a greek philosopher right uh, say if it's a, pl- a platonic philosopher in a kind of more pure sense um the greeks have a particular view of what wisdom might constitute in relation to the physical material creation um so the old testament has a high view of the physical of, of matter of creation so how would that contrast like so if he he's a great philosopher he's like maybe some of the Greeks, but then there's going to be some fundamental differences, right?
0: Great question. Well, I'm sort of persuaded a lot by some of the observations of Robert Alter. And one thing he communicates, and I'll put in my own words, so I don't want to necessarily, it's his, but I'm getting it from him, is that, look, a Greek philosopher abstracts. So you say, you know, wisdom is love, wisdom is goodness, or something like that.
1: A transcendental or something. It's a transcendental.
0: So the way that Ecclesiastes does the same thing is through concrete imagery. So it's like, there's two really cool ones that are helpful to highlight because they're really key to understand the book. And the first is actually in verse, I guess is verse two. It's a, uh, you know, fertility of fertility, absolute fertility. What does your translation say?
1: I am the ESV, so it's vanity of vanities. Says vanity of vanities. Vanity is all of vanities, all is vanity.
0: So all of our translations are trying to like get at what's being communicated here. But the most literal way to understand it is breath of breaths. I think is the uh, Hebrew, uh, yeah. So what does that mean? What, what, what is a breath? And it's done, it just goes away. And um, so he's saying, look, and, and he'll illustrate over and over these different ways, but look, a lot of our work, our efforts are storing up wealth on earth, all this kind of stuff we can do. At the end of the day, it's kind of, um, it's like a puff, it just disappears, goes away. It's invisible, it's temporary, all these kinds of things. Yeah. It's vain. Uh, it's futile. All, all these implications are absolutely true. But we're those are abstractions of the concrete imagery that he uses. So vanity is an abstract term that we like that translates the concrete breath of breaths, that yeah. breathing out. And so I think we're kind of, we would probably think about things a little more similar to maybe the Greek philosophers where they would try to create abstractions that are proposition and, and abstractly true where he illustrates them by concrete examples. Like one other one I'll bring up just because we're kind of on this topic. And this is like my favorite ever. um, in, um he talks about um, chasing the wind.
1: Oh, right. Yeah.
0: yeah and he in, says it
1: multiple times.
0: Yeah. The, the one that I can see is in chapter two and verse 11, but I think you're probably right. He says, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve I found everything to be futile, which is again, breath, everything to be a breath, and a pursuit of the wind. Okay, what is a pursuit of the wind? And your translation is? Mine
1: says striving. Striving uh, after after the wind. Yeah.
0: Again, it's really interesting. The concrete imagery uses is herding the wind. So you're like a Mm -hmm. sheep herder. Now, if you've ever tried to like herd animals before, which I guess I technically have. With my with, uh, Clint. I um, was going to say, you're, you're yeah. a hurting
1: Albertan, so.
0: <laughs> um, you can imagine, like, people say, like, it's, you know, it's it's hard to herd cats, or they say something to really? that effect. Well, cats are impossible to herd, right? How much harder would it be to actually, like, herd wind? Yeah. It goes wherever it wants to. It's futile. It's futile. So, he says, herding the wind, and we think of pursuing the wind, chasing the wind. We're trying to think, how does it actually make sense to us? But... I mean, the concrete imagery is beautiful. You think of a shepherd with a, with a crook. Come on, wind, get into the thing, you know, get into the building, or get into the fence. Right. It doesn't work. Yeah. There's nothing to it. And uh, I find those kinds of things just immensely valuable and helpful.
1: What's really strange to me, like reading reading through. So we're just dealing with the first six uh, chapters That's here. Right, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so you read through it and it's, it's, it's weird because he's, he's got such concrete imagery and, uh, you know, that, that to me in my mind fits with, you know, the, the, the sort of more biblical view of things that says that, you know, this, this world is not inherently evil and you know, we're not Manichaeans or, you know, whatever. And so, uh, so it has a high view of, of the material creation, the old Testament, that's for sure. And yet, he's giving all these things—a lot of things—that we would kind of see. Some of them are obvious. Okay, this makes sense. Why having all these concubines is bad. Um, but then there are some things that are we would think of as goods, uh, including even the what he what he describes in uh, chapter 2, 12 through about seventeen—the um, pursuit of wisdom, which we would think of as a good—is mm-hmm. uh, actually vanity as well, right? And so, like, there's material goods that we would think of as, as something that's p- worth pursuing, and yet he's saying all of this is futile, even, like, having children and stuff like that, you know? So, like, why why the heck does he say that?
0: <laughs> well, I think part of the answer is, again, like, what futile is the translation that we, it's the abstract translation we use of what he's saying. So, he's saying things are merest, like, Robert Alter translates this phrase, merest breath, the short, invisible, not lasting. And it seems like he, so I would put it this way. He says, like, it's good to eat, drink, and enjoy the gifts of God. So he has a yeah. positive view of that. I think he has a realistic view of the fallen world. Meaning he, he can see that it truly is hard and the toil it's toilsome, like the curse in Genesis 3. But he's able to have, he can see some good. And the things that you're describing, from my point of view, my best kind of inference or guess or intuition is he's trying to say something like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If you lay up your treasures on earth, if you value everything that you're doing in the present and now, they're going to rust. Yeah. They're, it's not going to feel good. It's merest breath. It'll just puff away. It's like hurting the wind. Whereas in a few places, he has this contrast with eternity. So in chapter three, uh, and in ver, where did he say we put eternity in, in our hearts? Actually, where is that? Uh, it's
1: yeah, uh, 311. in 311.
0: He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can dis- discover the work God has done from beginning to end. That's a great contrast. We have eternity in our hearts. We're pursuing something greater than what we are. And you get the limit is we can't understand the greatest thing there is, God. And you'll, he'll conclude his whole book in chapter 12 this way. At the end of the day, you've got to fear God and obey his commands. Yeah. So, so I do think he has this kind of view a realistic view of the futility of things, another realistic view that you can enjoy God's good gifts nevertheless, and then finally, that meaning's ultimately in the future, eternity with God. Yeah.
1: So do you think like, because it's interesting, right? In verse verse 11, as you just read, like so my translation says, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, uh, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end uh so you have eternity in our hearts would that would that be like do you think a reference or at least some sort of like allusion to the image of god um in the original creation of humanity and because there's a weird contrast like you go down to verse 18 and then he says i said in my heart with regard to the children of man that god is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts so it's like, it's almost like he's devaluing humans, but yeah, yep. humans are created in God's image. And then we also have God's eternity in our hearts.
0: Well, I would even expand on your animal comment. If you were 319, he's saying, look, for the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same as one dies. So dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. Yeah. And again, I think probably futile there is the idea of temporary, not lasting. So it's like humans and animals die just the same. And I think that I mean I think that's where he gets it because he often he talks about too, like you can make all this money and have all this power, then when you die, like who does it go to? Go to anyone. Like you can't keep it, right? You can't keep your treasures, they just get left behind when you die. So I think here he's he's probably saying in terms of what you can take with you, we both everyone dies. Yeah. And as I mentioned to you, like, there are some ways to think about that. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, they gained the ability to know good from evil, to, to choose evil, to have as an opportunity to, to choose. That actually made them dumb, like us less rational because right. it's most rational to always choose the good. Yeah. We, we became irrational and we also lost true freedom of choice because true freedom of choice is to choose what's best. Right but now we often choose what's worst for us. And so are, are we really much, like much better off than animals in a certain sense? People live their lives and essentially just live and then die. He's kind of right when you just look outside in the world around us, when you look at a fallen world. I mean, we're going to obviously as Christians, we're, we always want to jump straight to this eternal significance of Christ and the cross and all that. And he, he kind of gets there actually uh, more broadly than we might after Christ has come but I think he's just accurately describing the way people live in a fallen world, apart from reconciliation with God living east of Eden.
1: Yeah. So what I guess maybe a way to think of it then is like, these things can be goods if put in a right ordering. And uh, if we don't, if we don't see them as ultimate in and of themselves, um, but rather maybe as pointers towards something that's more significant eternally Um, but if they direct us to God, then they, and then they're in the right order, then they're actually having their, their significant impact, but that because we tend to live, you know, even as like Charles Taylor would say, like in the imminent frame, you Mm. know, we live for just now, just this world and that's it. Um, then even these things that are depicted as goods actually become in and of themselves, not good.
0: They're unsatisfying. It's interesting. The refrain he uses over and over, um, like in 2:24, there is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I've seen yeah. that even this is from God's hand. Um, verse chapter three, verse thirteen it is also the gift of God. Whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts, um, he says it more than like more times than that too. I guess 5:18. Sort of. I think there's more than that. He does recognize that God. Des share good things with us. And if we have them, we should enjoy them. He's not yeah. um, a, a Manichaean, as you mentioned earlier. So Manichaean would be someone who would see the material world as somehow inherently wrong and off. I think he actually sees having ultimate satisfaction in the material world as inherently off. This is what Ecclesiastes says. Not that the material, material world itself is necessarily, quote, bad. Yeah, It is cursed, perhaps, but not bad. Um, there's one other thing that I was hoping... Oh, maybe you could mention this. In uh, chapter 4 and verse 12, remember, we have this idea of, of a wise guy as a philosopher king talking about wisdom after life lived well and sharing it, but he also seems to access a literary tradition, and there's a, a citation here in verse 12 and also elsewhere you mentioned.
1: If you want yeah, to talk so about you've got... That. Well, it's, 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 it's curious... Um, So in, I think it's also in nine uh, where, um, where is it? I can't remember it off the top of my head here. I think it's nine, five through seven, but he actually makes direct direct quotations of the Epic of Gilgamesh, does he not? To derive a wisdom principle from, right? So at the very least you have here in in 412, uh, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And, you can get into the sort of like ancient Near Eastern background stuff here for in in a second. But what I find fascinating about it is here you have a biblical writer speaking within the context of wisdom. And we could even extrapolate that and just say of philosophy, a right, a right biblical philosophy. And, uh, and yet here he's quoting a pagan author, right. (laughs) And deriving some benefit from it. And uh, which again, and we were talking, we talked about this in the context of Calvin and the institutes, right. So that like, you can you can refer to and pull from pagan thought um, because right. there is value in it if it's speaking truthfully.
0: Yeah, I mean just even one broader point to make. Uh, before God exclusively seemed to work through the nation of Israel, you even have Abraham meeting a guy named Melchizedek or Melchizedek. Um, the, uh, it's, and he's a king of the most high God and Abraham pays a tithe to him. So there, there is a, there's a, I think there's a different way of viewing reality also before uh, Jacob become, before Israel becomes a nation. But anyways, all that to say is, so yeah, what's going on here? This threefold cord seems to be a citation of something that Gilgam in the Book of Gilgamesh. This idea that a threefold cord, when it's tied to a to a boat, doesn't really tear up, right? So you should partner with people, right? And it looks like there's more in chapter twelve.
1: The twelve. And, sorry, I couldn't remember up the oh, sorry yeah, chapter no, nine.
0: I was chapter nine. Nine. Seven,
1: nine seven through nine is what it is. Okay. Um,
0: So I think that's really interesting. And it's also interesting to consider like, so what is he doing? And I reminded, reminded of the Belgic confession, 1561, the second article that mentions that God reveals himself to us in two ways. First, the book of nature and second, and more clearly through the book of the word through scripture. And I think Christians have always really recognized that if there's one God, every effect of his speaks to him as cause. Now there's more clear effects and less clear effects. And what's unique about the creature of the word scripture, which is a creature of God is that it's a more clear effect because of the words in it that testify directly and are from God, but it's no less, it is less clear, but also an effect to see a tree or an ocean or whatever. They speak maybe less clearly without the the, the actual words, but also they uh, proclaim the glory of God night and day. Uh, back to God. So I just think that when there's wisdom in the world, you can see that uh, Calvin would call that the image of virtue. I think Luther and Melanchthon call it um, civic virtue or whatever. You can actually find wisdom in the world that itself is not mer- meritorious towards salvation or yeah. revelatory of the inner life of God, but is simply true. Just like a doctor can discover things about the brain that are true, an astronomer about the stars that are true. Likewise, you can discover practical things that are true in life. Like you should have You should balance your budget. Uh, You know, you should get exercise or whatever it is. We can listen to experts, and I kind of wonder if a book like Gilgamesh, given how widespread it was, whether he read it or not, people might have just—you might have just heard traders. Remember, so this is one thing I should just note. In the Levant, in in Israel, the idea that they're isolated from the rest of the world is is not at all true. I mean, they're from Egypt and Greece and the Middle East and. As far as like up to like probably china there was constant trade and interaction of people and there's no sense that the world is like today but a little bit slower in movement right. it would be so easy actually to have all sorts of communication a trader comes into town you talk to them they mention gilgamesh you maybe never read the book but he tells you he quotes it why wouldn't he right. uh it is we have so much material records of this uh vibrant trading culture that gets a little bit of a pause actually i think um at one point in history, but nonetheless, at this time, probably, and even afterwards, um, there's lots of evidence for that. I think at this time, it depends what time this is written, but if it is around the Solomon time, uh, there was a there's probably a bit of a pause, but Solomon obviously is trading
1: with Ethiopia and stuff like that, right? Yeah, Cush, and uh, you have like Queen of Sheba and things, yeah. Um, it's interesting just to go back to what you were saying a second ago. Um, if you read, uh, there's a medieval saint named Bonaventure, Saint Bonaventure, he was a contemporary of thomas aquinas um, much more in the augustinian or the platonic tradition than less the aristotelian um, but he says something similar to what you were just saying he uses the language of vestiges um, that uh, so in his book on the kind of journey of the soul or the mind towards god he organizes it according to seven chapters seventh chapters where you kind of finally come to full mystical union or ecstatic union with god we have to actually start in the sensible world and there is a bit of a kind of Neoplatonism there in that, you know, like, you know, is the world an emanation from the One that we return back to? But he maintains a much more kind of biblical view that's I think reflected here. You use—he's got like a natural theology. You use the sensible world uh, to elevate and you work up this ladder towards final mixed mystical union with God. But he notes how there are these vestiges, these images, of, the word of God. Implanted in the world because the world is an effect, and effects actually reflect the God, the cause. Right. So there's the image of the of the cause in the effect itself, and so you know and vestiges there, are kind of like the image of um, you know if you walk walk uh, on sand, you leave an imprint of your foot, a footprint in the sand, and that's kind of how this world is. It's got these vestiges of God in it that we can actually look to contemplate in order then to actually look up be above the sun, as it were, beyond the imminent frame into something that's transcendent.
0: And that's a really good point, because I think once you become a Christian and have the Holy Spirit, and therefore your will is being repaired within you, I think then you can begin to rightly enjoy the world with God as its final end and to know things more truly. And therefore, to explore astronomy, to explore geoc- whatever it is, is a way in which you can enjoy God's creation, as revelation less clear than the most clear scripture of course but you you see what i'm saying and i also think it transforms a little bit of how you might read ecclesiastes because the Kohelet here he definitely sees his eternities in our heart he sees the curse of the world and says you can enjoy things but i think after the cross after the holy spirit indwells us we probably have an even grander way of viewing the world around us despite the fall and despite the curse we understand those things are are with us until the regeneration of all things but I think we have maybe a deeper and fuller understanding in the new covenant of, in one sense, the goodness of creation. It's I, funny um, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say like, I, I was gonna mention just like, we live in such a technological society where everything is, is safe and easy, at least in North America, we, death is hidden. But if you lived like even a hundred years ago, if you had 10 children, I mean, many of them would not make it to adulthood. Yeah. I don't know the actual statistics offhand, but it was like death was everywhere and suffering yeah, I think was everywhere. John,
1: like think about John Owen in the 17th century. He had eleven kids. I think it was one made it to adulthood and then I think it was a daughter. I think she died too, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah. You imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have your you'd have many kids, and then your your wife, the one who bears the child. Like that's having a child is like you might very well die. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have, you can go to the hospital with all this advanced techn- technology. So I think Ecclesiastes describes the world in a very true and authentic way. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we just miss that because of our technology.
1: Like I like what, uh, so, um, uh, Trumper Longman and, and uh, Ray Dillard have a, an introduction to hmm. the Old Testament where there's a chapter on Ecclesiastes and they start the whole thing with, with a little paragraph and, that final sentence says many people have turned to this book for help when they've experienced disillusionment with their world and even with their God. Hmm. And, uh, and you can see like the real relevance, then uh, the, the abiding relevance of the book, because that's the thing, right? Is that we can actually become disillusioned with God because we've become disillusioned with this world because of the, the state that it's actually in. And man, like think about even just this past year with covid and then lockdowns mm. and masks and then you have like george floyd and then you have riots and then you have i mean it was even funny he even mentioned something about like investments in here i was like oh that's just like this wall street thing <laughs> and, you know like it was just <laughs> funny like to to pick up all these kind of like relevant themes the that just have, it like... Talks
0: about meme stocks it's so relevant <laughs>
1: that's right <laughs> But, you know, it was just really interesting to see that it has, because it's wisdom, right? It's right. always going to have an abiding principle in any kind of culture. Because mm. These are just things that are common to us living in this world, as it were, and making this world ultimate. And we actually, right. e- even when this world fails us, we should look to the ultimate, to the eternal, to God, you know?
0: Well, I think, I mean, I think God is wise to give us books like Job, where we can see true and real genuine suffering, the problem of evil, Worked out maybe in ways that are not satisfactory and they never will be probably until the resurrection. And then we can see the Psalms, all the laments and all the whole full spectrum of emotional life and prayer and courage there. Uh, then you can see Song of Songs, you know, marriage, however you want to view that. And then you can, uh, Proverbs again, lived wisdom from father to son. But then you have a book like Ecclesiastes, which, which I think is right. I think this is a book for you when. You realize, actually, the world around you, if we're just in that imminent frame that you talked about, is, in fact, not satisfying. It's really only satisfying to find that fulfillment, that eternity in your heart, that hearts are restless, as Augustine said, until they find rest in he who is immutable.
1: Right. Right.
0: Well, he said it different, but I, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the English, the old English is until we find our rest in the, yeah, <laughs> to quote another wise Christian sage, uh, because I couldn't help but hearing this song over and over in my head when I was reading this. Right. Um, and uh, I know who the original author of it was, but it's transformed when Johnny Cash sings uh, hurt.
0: Oh, it's you know? so good. I mean, yeah.
1: Oh man, I mean, I can't listen to that song because it just it hits me so hard that like sometimes if I hear it in the restaurant, I gotta like get out and walk out because I just I'll I'll be wrecked from it. And he says things in there, right? Like he says, You could have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down, I will make you hurt. And uh, you know, beneath the stains of time, the feelings disappear. You're somewhere else, my right here. And he's like, What have I become? You know, everyone I know goes away in the end. You could have it all, you could have my empire of dirt, and I will let you down, I will make you hurt. And it's just like You know, and when you watch, if you watch the music video of it, it's just even more intense, you know, it's like, here's Johnny Cash. He's just like this guy. He's had it all. The drugs, the women, the high life, money, power, fame, everything. And he says it's an empire of dirt, you know? Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the best version of the song. It's the only one you should listen to. Yeah. Don't listen to Nine Inch Nails. (laughs) Well, I think this is that's kind of a, a good place to end because it actually ends on the accent of the book itself. Next week, we'll look at chapter seven through 12, and the book ends in a surprisingly somewhat positive way. And we'll talk about that. I think it'd be interesting once we have a week to think about it. Um, so we'll stop there. Thanks, Ian. We'll see you next week. Sounds good.